0: All right, so let's jump right in with a quiz this morning, all right? <laughs> let's take a quick quiz, right? So I'm just going to call on some of you, and we're just going to see if you remember anything, all right? So you're not really getting graded, so don't be all embarrassed or whatnot. But uh, all right, what is, uh, actually, I'll be really nice about it, all right? So I'll just call you, and then you tell me, one, give me a letter or a number and tell me, tell me what it is, all right? So uh, let's just start with Phoebe. We'll just go across the room. You just pick any one you want, and tell me which order it is.
1: Uh, number four, the dead sea.
0: You got it. Awesome. All right. <laughs> well, Fred, you're up. Number one, the right, De
1: right. Jordan, the River. The, the what? The Jordan River.
0: Number one. Mm. This? Yes. No. No, it's right. What is that, everybody? Mediterranean Sea, right? Yeah. Yep. Ethan. Uh, I'm gonna say five is the Nile. Uh. Yep. Good. All right, Robert. Uh the lower river there going to the Persian Gulf. I don't know what letter. This one? Is. Yeah. Seven. Euphrates. Yep. Euphrates. Yep. And um, that's it. Peggy, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, which area? More
1: towards the um, F.
0: In here? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So in there would be uh, Mesopotamia. Okay. So what is the river up here? If this one's Euphrates, Tigris. what's this one? Tigris. 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 Good. Okay. Tigris. Um, dumps all down into the what Gulf? Persian, Gulf? Persian Gulf. Right. All right. So over here, two, three, and four on the map is uh, what's the top one? Number two. Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee. That is- Jordan River, right? And then dumps into the Dead Sea. We already mentioned that one, okay? So, we also have, over here is Canaan, and then C is the city for Jerusalem, right? And you got um, Babylon over here, of course. Um, Assyria up, up at the top. Assyria it doesn't have a number, but it would be in between um, the B and the E. And then letter D over on the left and bottom would be Egypt, right? Alright. So, quick answers if you need them. There they are. Geography is important. It's important for us to understand where these places are, and if we can learn uh, these primary ones, it'll really go a long ways in helping us understand uh, what's taking place. I use a lot of um, slide notes from Dr. Stevenson's uh, work, and he's got a a good book, um, Ancient History, a Framework for the Bible. I use it as a supplement to our concise Bible atlas. So that's just um, giving you a a reference plug on where I get a bunch of my stuff, including slides like this. So the Fertile Crescent is the area that we've been uh, discussing and, and talking about, and that is the whole area, as you can see outlined here, that starts way over here by the Persian Gulf, sweeps all the way through Mesopotamia, and then comes all the way down over here into Egypt. Covering the Nile rivers. And of course, it's called the Fertile Crescent because of the rivers that are all in there. So you can see all the blue lines. That's what makes it so fertile. We talked last week, I think it was, about the difference between the the geography area as far as the water goes in Egypt and Mesopotamia, and how in Egypt it was uh, much more predictable. And the Nile flooded all the time, every year produced uh, good vegetation, whereas over in Mesopotamia, much more unpredictable. Wiped out cities, etc. So, here on this map is just a few of the areas listed for you again. When when I first uh, started looking at maps myself as a young Christian, it it was difficult at first, and sometimes I would look at maps and I really had no idea what was water and what was land. I don't know if you ever have that problem with maps or not. Um, But, as you get acclimated to them, uh, it gets easier. And so you can see on this map again, um, the same areas, Babylon, Assyria over there. Aram, what's another name for Aram? Anybody remember? Starts with an S? Syria. Syria, good, okay. Then Israel, what's several more names for Israel? Palestine, Hannah, Very good, right? Okay. Um, and then Egypt over here, Okay. Hittites, they think, came from up here, come across. Um, Phoenicia over here. Also, the Philistines, the sea people, uh, come in off the sea and, s- and set up camp, uh, basically along the coastline is where most of their cities were there. All right. Um, all right, the other thing that we looked at was the geography of the Palestinian area. All right, and there's there's four main areas, and the the bottom part of this slide shows you how much it varies in its topography. So you can see, for instance, that the the Dead Sea, remember our three bodies of water right here all the time, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. You can see how low that is and how this whole rift valley up on both sides has these mountain ranges. And so starting by the Mediterranean Sea here, you have the coastal plains, then you have the central mountain range. Okay, then the Jordan Rift Valley and the Transjordan, meaning the other side of, of the Jordan, which again is going to have some mountainous areas and then it's going to level off into plains. <clears throat> I want to look at a couple of things today. One of them is going to be another aspect of uh, cosmology. But before we get into that, um, this is an, a new uh, slide. Dealing with the climate, this just helps you understand um, the rainy and dry seasons. Um, dry season in the summer, rainy season in the winter time. It might be a little opposite from what you think for Florida, because in the summertime we get rains every single afternoon, right? Um, in the wintertime it gets kind of dry. So when you read through the cycles of uh, agriculture that take place in the Old Testament, an understanding of the fact that the, the winter is the rainy season – the early rains here in the fall, the latter rains in the spring, and then you can correspond that with the different harvests that take place and see why it's important for rain to come at the proper times. Remember that um, this is just a, an illustration of how different things are in the 21st century from, from biblical times. Pretty sure there's a song. Of Where rain is viewed as a negative thing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, when the rain comes, we talk about that, right? And we 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 use it almost like a curse, right? You're having a bad day, it's a bad times, it's raining, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or when it rains, it really pours, right? And that's what we mean, right? Things are really bad. It's all coming at once. Car broke down, got cancer, somebody died. You know, it's just pouring on me. Um, but in the biblical times, it's the complete opposite. Rain is a good thing. The, the pouring of rain is God's pouring Himself out on you. And so that's just an example of when we're talking about ancient Near Eastern culture and we're talking about uh, worldview concepts, it's completely opposite. So you read that in the Bible and how you live in our 21st century culture are completely opposite. Um, Elijah prays and it doesn't rain for three and a half years. They're cursed because they're out of God's will. They're, they're disobeying God. Um, we get up on Sunday morning. A lot of pastors get up on Sunday morning like, oh, no, it's raining. (laughs) Tennis is going to bay down, you know? It's like a curse to us instead of the fact that it's a blessing. Um, So Americans are just lazy when it rains, right? All right, major roads, okay? What's that? Yeah. Major roads, okay, in this time period that we need to be aware of, okay? The... The two cities that you have tagged here, uh, Megiddo and Jericho. Then you have the King's Highway and the Way of the Sea, the Way of the Philistines. So the Way of the Sea goes right by the Mediterranean Sea, which is where the Philistines lived. And so when you hear that they're having battles, the Israelites, with the Philistines again, well, they're having battles over um, with the Sea Peoples. And then the other one, and we'll we'll come back to these as we look at Abraham's life, as we look at uh, other aspects um, of the geography of the Old Testament. So the other one is the King's Highway. So these are issues, pretty much most of what we're discussing is at some point, it's it's in your textbook, we're just illustrating it um, a little differently. So I want to talk about worldviews again. Last week, we looked at uh, creation stories, Enuma Elish, etc., and I want to look a little bit today at the flood in Genesis 6. So if you remember, this is a depiction of how many of the ancients, not just the Israelites, but other ancient peoples kind of viewed the world. There was this this firmament, which was um, a solid thing keeping the waters out, and there was some kind of openings or windows that, that would let it in, and these pillars that is holding everything up. This is the other one that we looked at, demonstrating the, the Hebrew concept. And so, when the flood comes, all right, the, the Bible says that the waters come from below and above, and it's basically an uncreation thing. So, God, God is reversing what he did at creation. If you remember from Genesis 1 and creation— He separated out the waters above from the waters below. And at the flood, they're coming back together. He separated out the waters um, from the land. And again, at the flood, they're coming all back together. And so, in Genesis, the book of beginnings, as the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, okay, or at war. This is Genesis 3.15, right? So, there's the curse, and then there's the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, okay? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we're talking spiritually here, all right? Because the serpent didn't literally physically birth Cain, right? So as this is continuing through, we get up to Genesis chapter 6, okay? Genesis chapter 6 has a lot of debatable material, but so does almost everything in Genesis, right? So as we approach that and we get to the flood... One of the things that we notice is the length of time in people's lives. How long they're living. They're living very long, especially compared to what we live today. You hit Genesis chapter 5, the genealogies. How many of you like to skip the genealogies? Yeah, right? I, I know, I understand, I'm there. Okay. So, it wasn't until probably in some Bible class or maybe I was reading some book. Might have been a book actually. I don't think they did much with the genealogies when I was taking Bible class. Um, some book probably that I was reading on the Pentateuch or the Torah was looking at the aspects of the chronologies. And in, in Genesis five, if you read through this, you have a very um, repetitious formula. It says these are the family records. Okay, so. Reading. but if you have your Bible there, um, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, these are the family records, or these are the generations, depending on the translation, this is that phrase that I believe I mentioned last week, it's the Toledo phrase, okay, that is a structural marker throughout the book of Genesis, right? I think uh, if I remember right, there's 11 of them. So every time it says, these are the account, or these are the generations, or these are the histories, it just depends on your translation. And these chronologies, they work like hinges. that connect the different narratives. Good morning. And I got this first from Selhammer, I think, John Selhammer, in the Pentateuch's narrative, as they connect together the different stories that come uh, before and after it. So a lot of people wonder, like, what is the purpose of this this genealogy in here? And it's really, it's twofold. It's a hinge. That's how I view them. They're hinges, like, on a door. All right? And they swing both ways. They connect. So in our case, they connect Genesis chapter 4 with Genesis chapter 6 with the storyline. And they also bring you from one family to another family. And so there's this other aspect that I see in Scripture um, that I probably also picked up from Stalhammer is this, uh, he doesn't call it this, but I'm going to call it like the accordion effect. And what I mean by that is we have this expansion and then this narrowing. This expansion and then this narrowing. And so, in Genesis, we see that people are increasing, and how do we know that? Well, we're reading in Genesis 5 about all these different people. So obviously, they're increasing, because we have a record of their genealogies. And in chapter 6, it's going to say that they multiplied, and they have increased. And so, then in um, 6, we're going to narrow down to Noah. So that's the accordion narrowing, all right? you know, Have you ever seen an accordion? Everybody? Yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah? They, they, they do mm-hmm. that, right? So, And then it's going to expand again after the flood, and then it's going to narrow back down, to Genesis 12, to Abraham. So you have this constant accordion effect that is going on as God is working out his plan in the world. So in <laughs> Genesis 5, it says these are the family records of the descendants of Adam. On the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them, and he called them man. And then, in verse 3, Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a child in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. He lived 800 years after Seth and fathered sons and daughters. Adam's life lasted 930 years that he died. That's the formula. Okay, Each verse, pretty much, will follow the same pattern. Okay, How old they are when they have their, their son... Then they live for X number more years. They live for a total number of years. And then the last phrase is almost always, and they died, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you have different translations, something different that means the same thing. Let's say you get to a certain guy in verse 24. Yes, sir. Are the years like our years? Uh, most conservative scholars would say yes. But, of course, everything in Genesis is debatable, right? So there you go. I take it as yes. So yeah, I think they lived this long. I think they lived long, long times. Okay. And if you look at this here, that shows their their different uh, ages right here on the screen, and <coughs> and their firstborn. So, um, I think that if you look at um, what the world was like back then <coughs> versus now, I think if you look at the, the scope of history, you see a dwindling of the lifespans. I think that's all part of what's going on. Okay. So in verse 24, though, of Genesis 5, instead of saying he died, it says Enoch walked with God and he was not there because God took him. And so here's my point with this. If you're reading through Genesis 5, the genealogies that we like to skip, right? But if you're reading through it, you're like blank, 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 and he died. 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 blank, 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 blank. He wasn't because God took him. Wait a minute, that doesn't fit. You see, so that stands out. And so as Moses is putting this together, okay, these guys weren't dumb like everybody thinks. You know, this is literary genius type stuff. And so this sticks out to us, and there's a point. Everything looks bad. Everything has has gone bad, pretty much, that man has touched, right? But there is a hope. There are some people that are righteous. There are some people that actually choose to follow God, that worship God. And you have that example in here. And then, you know, after Enoch is Methuselah, which we we know him because he's the oldest or he lived the longest in in the Bible, you know, 969 years. But he also dies, right? And then we get down to Lamech, okay? This is a different Lamech from previously. And he lives 777 years. Well, seven is the number of completion. So you see, right here, we have all these things piling up, right, with something different. Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then... Lamech leads us to Noah. It gives you the encapsulation of his life. He's 500 years old. He fathers Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then that leads us into chapter 6. And chapter 6 is going to be about who? Noah. So these are the hinges that are connecting these different things. Okay? In Genesis 6... Now it came about, when men began to multiply in the face of the land, daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this phrase, the sons of God, is a a highly debated phrase. Um, Is this what you're going to write your paper on? I
1: think you're pushing
0: me to. No, I don't care one way or the other. You mentioned it last week. So so we're not going to spend much time on it this morning. I'm just going to give a few different uh, views on it, and I'm I'm going to move on. But... Genesis 6, 1-4 through four gets a lot of attention. Alright? But regardless of the interpretation, which we're going to go through a couple, um, what happens? The flood happens. So, Genesis 6 is about the judgment of God, but as um, James Hamilton, in his um, well, I forget the exact title, but it's um, something about mercy and, and judgment. you has got an entire biblical theology tracing from Genesis to Revelation displaying how in God's judgment there's always this mercy aspect. And you can see that in uh, the garden, because Adam and Eve should have died. But an animal died in their place. So there is judgment, but there's mercy in the judgment. You can see it when we get to the flood in Genesis 6 because God's going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. But in the judgment there's this mercy because he's not wiping them all out is still there with his family, and we are going to continue the plan of God. So, although we focus on, or people focus on, who are the sons of God, we need to also realize there's a bigger picture going on here. And Whatever the right answer is to sons of God, there's still the flood, and there's the righteous Noah, and then there's what happens after that. So in verse 3, the Lord says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. That's a debated phrase, too. Is he only going to live to be 120? Well, the problem with that is we have people living more than 120 after that. So, the other interpretation, generally, is that it's 120 years until the flood. That's what I have held to. Genesis 6-4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. And those were mighty men, who were of old, men of renown. So this is one of the key passages that gets studied on. Who are these sons of God? Who are the Nephilim, um, These mighty men, men of renown. And of course, if you look at different translations, you can begin to tell a little bit where the translation thinks it is based on what they translated it. So, uh, men of renown is 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 giving you a hint, kind of even um, at this translation. So. We continue on. Some people think that the sons of God are angels. Okay, The Septuagint supports this. The sons of God are angels in Job. Um, the angels in heaven don't marry, but these angels were not in heaven, so therefore maybe they did. The resulting offspring produced giants. Um, and then support from Enoch, an apocryphal book in Jude 6, is usually brought in to support this view. So this is one view. This is a very old view. This is a view held by many um, ancient Jewish commentators, um, Christian commentaries. If you were to stack up all the views, um, this would probably have the largest stack of supporters. Okay. Majority doesn't mean right, right? I mean, they could be right, but majority doesn't mean right, right? Right? It could be, but it doesn't, right? I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just—I mean, I don't agree with it. But I'm just saying, just because it's the majority, you don't hold to it, right? You try to find the best biblical answer, all right? So, sons of God refers to descendants of Seth. Um, the preceding chapters set forth the contrast of the two lines. Men begin to call in the name of the Lord. It is mankind that is punished in the flood. Sonship is a common theme in the Old Testament, and marriage of the godly seed to the ungodly people is a common theme in Genesis. So this is held by many different people as well uh Stelhammer is one of the proponents of this i think he still holds to it right. so i've i've held to this most of i guess most of my life since i've studied it um, sorry we have this in our notes right <coughs> with this video this slide this, this will be in the video that's uploaded tonight okay Let yeah yes. yeah so i got to write this thing. Mm, you don't have to So And then there's the third one. There's actually kind of a fourth that's not on here. So the sons of God refers to to kings and rulers. The Aramaic lends itself to this interpretation. The Elohim, okay, remember last week we talked about the word Elohim? Was that in this class or my other one? This one? Probably both. Probably both? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Elohim can mean more than just the word God, right? Remember we talked about this last week? Yes, No. So Elohim, um, we think in English that it means God, okay? Mm-hmm. But Elohim doesn't have to mean God. So Elohim, the word is used for kings. It's used for rulers. It's used for judges. It's used for angels. Um, it's remember, it's a Hebrew word. It's not an English word. And so it's how the Hebrew people used it, not how we are used to thinking of God or or whatever else. All right. Mm-hmm. So it is used in these verses for these different um, people human judges etc the Babylonian texts have similar usages of it kings are often referred to it as I mentioned um, parallels Lamech with the taking of, of many wives and the Nephilim uh, refer to fallen ones so these are these are three of the main views there's kind of another one it fits in with this one um, but is a little bit distinct from it and it's about the fact that they're they're kind of like um, Warlords, or, um, uh, I mean, warlords is a good word, I guess. They're mighty men. Which you see this in the translations: men of renown, mighty men. Um, they're warriors. And they're also big warriors um, from several of our texts. There is an article um, in the biblical illustrator from a little while ago, summer of 2012, actually, uh, by one of the professors at the main campus for BCF, um, Dr. Newell, on the Anakim. So if you look at this issue, you will see the Nephilim, not only were they there before the flood, but they're also there after the flood, so they're not wiped out in the flood. And also you'll find that the Anakim, are mentioned, or Enakim, are mentioned in multiple places, uh, nine times in Deuteronomy and Joshua, and they're related to the, the Anakites, which are connected to this whole scenario as well. And so, obviously, with all of these different controversial issues, um, what, what our responsibility is, what your responsibility is, is to do your best to do due diligence, um, and figure out what, what's the text saying, what fits best with the, the culture of the time period, and <coughs> and then go to that and be willing to to alter it. You know, if the ev- evidence, biblical evidence, you know, changes, or or you begin to see it differently, or what shown it differently. Mm, pardon.
1: You said something. I said what the text said. Secondary. I said what. You just said what the text said. To the
0: oh yeah, period. yeah. What the text says, <clears throat> our views got to be connected to, to the text. I mean, uh, most Christians say it is, but you know, we don't want to prove text. We want to actually have our answer based on an accurate understanding of the text, including the culture and the ancient, you know, Near East world views. So just like I mean, use my illustration about rain for a second. You know, if you go into the biblical text and you import, it's called eisegesis, right? Instead of exegesis, you're putting into the text. If if you go into the text to talk about rain, and you bring our idea that we don't like it when it rains because it messes up our plans, and you interpret that into the text, well, you've just flipped the entire text. You've ruined it. All right? So that's what we don't want.
1: Uh, that's one of the things that is said that the angels wanted to stop the seed so that if you corrupt the seed then the Messiah can't come that's something that is purported along with
0: the right, which I think is not really specifically explicitly in the text Um, also there's there's no judgment really there in Genesis 6 on angels like angels aren't being judged mankind's being judged so in my opinion see Th- this is this is interesting thank you actually for, for bringing this up because it shows another part of the dilemma if you will here And you see this in, in in politics you see this in everything so you can have the same facts but they're interpreted differently I'll turn right facts. right <laughs> yeah so so we do have to be careful with that and the thing is that again you, d- you have to do your your due diligence so I don't see in Genesis 6 where there's any supernatural beings that are being judged. Mankind's being judged for mankind's rebellion against God. Um, I see that in, in the scope of Scripture, again, this is, this is how I see it from my understanding and my studying of it. I see that there's this accordion issue going on. There is something with the seeds, and I think that we have a focus and a narrowing on, on the seed and the bloodlines, and we're honing in now on Noah's. And so all the rest of the bloodlines are kind of being wiped away, like, well, literally, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay? And we're getting into Noah's. And what's going to happen in Genesis 12? Well, again, it's going to accordion out, it's going to fan out, but then God's going to narrow down and we're going to focus down on the bloodline of Abraham. So there, there definitely is the whole bloodline thing going all the way through this. The idea of trying to corrupt it and spirit beings trying to corrupt it, though, in my opinion, that's imported into the text. Like, it doesn't say that. It's based on a potential interpretation of, you know, the Nephilim, etc. Okay. So, but there's Great scholars and Christians that did hold to that. So, and like I said, uh, probably the majority if you stack them up. So, all right. So, those are, are some of the views. A chiastic structure. Again, I might ask you sometimes if, if I mention something because I I teach five hours pretty much straight, and sometimes I don't remember which Old Testament class I said this in, but. <laughs> This is the chiastic structure, um, which is an inverted parallelism, where your outside parts of the storyline uh, are related to each other, and it tapers into the middle, which is a turning point. It doesn't have to be the main point, but it's a turning point. And so, if uh, you're unfamiliar with this, entire sections of the Bible, some would actually argue that like the whole Bible, or at least the whole Hebrew Bible, is chiastically structured. Um, if you look in the middle, you see the flood on the earth. You look at the outsides, and you've got Noah's sons, you got covenant, you got commands, entering and coming out of the ark, and right in the middle is, is the judgment. Now, there's a similar one. I don't know if I showed it to you last week or not, but in Genesis 3, there's a very similar uh, chiastic structure, where, again, the judgment is... Is the middle. It's the turning point. That God shows up and He judges um, Adam and Eve in the garden. (laughs) So these are literary structures and techniques that are used in the text to highlight and demonstrate uh, certain things that are going on. I'll tell you what else I will attempt to do for you because. I was explaining before I started class about how these are created. as I mentioned, I get um, a bunch of these the PowerPoint materials from Dr. Stevenson or um, DeRoshi in my other class, etc. so uh, but I edit it out, I pick and choose what I want, you know. so uh, I may be able to go back and um, create a PowerPoint that I can upload for you.
1: That'd be great too. okay, this is for great these. stuff.
0: So this is just um, not to reiterate everything I told you earlier, Robert, but um, trying to find the, the right balance for uh, what your needs are and with the presentation program I'm using so that I can actually record this. Okay. All right. So continuing on. <coughs> so in Genesis 6, 14, he tells Noah to make yourself an ark of gopher wood, okay, make the ark with rooms covered inside and out. Now. I don't know if you've ever known this or not before, but this is the same word that's used later on for Moses. This is foreshadowing. See, this is stuff that uh, if you're not reading Hebrew text, which, I mean, I'm not reading Hebrew text normally either, okay? So, in fact, I can't literally, like, read it. I can work with it. Uh, They're two different things. But if your English translation will use the, the same word, and I'm not saying they always have to use the same English word if it's the same Hebrew word, but in this case, there's a foreshadowing going on here, and so y- you see this, and then when you get to when you get to Moses' story, you're supposed to pick up on it. Oh wait, ark. When someone gets put in an ark, what happens? So when Mama puts baby Moses in the ark and puts him in the river, you really don't need the end of the story to know what's going to happen
1: mm-hmm.
0: because he's put in an ark. And when you put in an ark, what happens? Oh, yes, exactly. And so that's just a, a thing of understanding. God's storyline. That's why when you look at the idea of the temple in the Bible, or you you look at other theological aspects, by the time you get to like the New Testament, like you know what's going to happen with certain things because this is what always happens in that situation. So right? is all our our temple going to be destroyed? This one? By this one? Well, we're going to get new ones, right? This will be resurrected, and then we get a new bodies, so whatever that's going to look like, right? And so, and then we will be with Him, so. So the arc this is how you shall make it the length of the arc 300 cubits breadth 50 height 30 okay we're not going to go all, in, all into the arc um, i want to focus more on some other aspects and i'm assuming that some of this was covered in OT survey 1 i, I don't know if anybody can answer me that or not but we're going over so uh, it's a long time ago <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right not going to spend much time on this, but I just want to um, mention some of the things related to it being a universal flood. flood. Yes, I believe it was universal. It was a global flood. Um, but the waters lifted the ark above the earth in 717 and 718. Um, it prevailed and increased exceedingly. Above the highest hills were covered. Rose 15 cubits above, or 20 feet or so, above the, the highest mountain in 720. So if it's above the highest mountains, it's got to be covering everything, because otherwise it, it would go down. All right. <clears throat> Everything died, and then the water prevailed for 150 days. So there are some proponents for the local flood, and they base it on the fact that the word earth, harets um, is often used to describe a local area, and the account was given from the viewpoint of the narrator is from his perspective. Um, and so that is their argument There, there. Right? That's um, not something you're really going to be, be tested on. Um, there's a few more. Contrast between the two there as well. But I'm trying to head to talking about Gilgamesh. So, <coughs> In the seventh month and the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rushed to the mountains of Ararat. People have tried to find this. Okay? Yes, um, trying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's several videos. I've seen some of them that, that say they have found it. And that, then there's others that say that there's no it really is the art. So what do you think? Um, it's, you know, it's probably fairly unlikely that they found it. I think that I think sometimes we try too hard to try to prove the Bible. You know, um, one of my students, kids asked me at a Bible study we do at the apartments last night about, you know, proving God. The Bible never set us to prove God, you know. Genesis was written, this was written, what we're talking about, was written um, after the Exodus. You know, Moses is writing this to a group of people that had just been freed from slavery. Um, and honestly, they really don't need to be demonstrated that, that, that there's a God and that He exists and that He's the Creator because they just saw Him part the Red Sea and drown Pharaoh's army. You know, they just <laughs> saw Him do ten plagues. And so, that's what just happened. And then Moses is writing this as they're getting ready to go to the, the promised land. So he's giving them You know, the pre-story, the pre-history of their ancestry and how they fit into that storyline. And so, you know, the challenge there is, is one, we don't need to prove God. You know, the Bible never tries to. And the other is, how do you fit into what God's doing to God's story? Because that's what Moses was trying to help them understand. Like, this is what God has just done. He separated us out where a new people called to be holy and righteous for him to be eventually, you know, the pipeline. Bring the gospel to to the world. That's what you and I are called to. The same thing. So we continue on. Okay, Ararat um, up here is, is where uh, it's thought to be. So up to the top north of the Mesopotamia area. So that's where the the ark hunters usually go. But there's debate about that also. About which mountain, you know. So there's several different ones. So the Gilgamesh epic. Okay. So if you're going to compare stories. Alright, actually, I think on your uh, handout that I think I uploaded, um, I want to mention a couple different accounts. There's the Erudu Genesis account, okay, spelled like this, E-R, sorry, sorry, Eridu. <laughs> E-R-I-D-U, Genesis, alright, this is the oldest Mesopotamian flood story. All right, so that's what you want to know. It's the oldest Mesopotamian flood story. All right, it's a Sumerian flood myth recorded on a tablet, and um, it is not all there. Much of the tablet is missing. It was previously only known through the writing of uh, Barosus, a Babylonian priest who lived in the third century BC, and he wrote a history of Babylon. So, in this account, the god Enki. Um, wants to destroy the human race through a flood. So, there's, there's a boat that's built. Enki instructs uh, Zeus Sudra to build a boat and fill it with animals. A storm flooded the earth for seven days and nights. And it appears the first thing that he did upon exiting the boat was offer sacrifices of animals and grain products like barley and cakes. As a reward for his behavior, he gets immortality. Okay, so... So, where did it mess up? Wh- where did who mess up? The writer, because Noah died. Of, of, oh, of Genesis account? <laughs> we'll get to Genesis in just a second. So, that's the oldest Mesopotamian flood story, okay? Now, the Epic of Atrahasis, okay? This is the next one. Epic of Atrahasis. A-T-R-A-H-A-S-I-S. This is the Babylonian Epic. This is the most complete flood story, Okay? So, Eridu is, is the oldest Mesopotamian flood story. Epic of Atrahasis is the most complete flood story for Mesopotamia. Okay, It's a Babylonian epic. It, too, has portions missing. Because what did they write their stuff on? Clay tablets, right? Yeah, so they get busted up. So, in this epic, the god en- Enlil decides to destroy the human race through a flood because they were making so much noise that he couldn't sleep. I mentioned part of this last week. Yes. Okay? Yes, so, know. he has a dream. Atrahasis does, in which Enlil tells him to destroy his house and use the material to build a boat to withstand the upcoming seven-day flood. Unlike Noah in the Genesis Genesis account, Atrehasis employed a variety of workers to build the boat, including carpenters and reed workers and uh, the rich and the poor, and uh, it does not appear that they joined him on the boat during the flood. They just helped build it. Um, As in the Genesis account, he offered sacrifices upon leaving the boat after the flood. Okay, the third one, and I'm only really going to mention mention three of them.
1: That's but all we need to know?
0: Yeah. The third one is the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? This e- is the most well-known. Epi- the
1: third one?
0: Yeah. So, in Redo, this is the oldest. This is the most complete. Okay? Oh. And then Epic of Gilgamesh is the most well-known. That's how you keep the three straight. And as far as the three are concerned, well, the first two, that's mostly really all you need to know, right? Oldest, most complete, and then Gilgamesh, most well-known. So (coughs) this portion, the flood portion, is written in Akkadian. I actually uploaded, I think, last night. um, This tablet's on Tablet 11, so there's multiple clay tablets. And I uploaded the, a translation of this for you to have if you want it. <coughs> it's written in Akkadian, and it's dated to the 7th century BC. Okay, um, In this account, Utnapishtim, if that's how you say his name, something like that, he tells Gilgamesh, who was searching for immortality, how he was saved from a flood sent by gods. When the gods living in Shoropak decided to cause a flood, one of the gods secretly warned him of the plan and told him to tear down his house and use the materials to build a boat. <laughs> so, it continues by describing how he built the boat and he survives the subsequent flood. And there are many parallels just like um, some of the other ones have have parallels. So, the difference though is, is what makes the difference, right? And that is more, That's you what we, we hone in on. It's simple, right? But it's, that's what it is. So, yes, there are similarities, okay? So, I think that points to the fact that there really was this global flood. Almost every single culture has a flood story, right? Almost every single culture has a flood story. Um, we have them from, from here, Native Americans. We have them every, everywhere you go. There are these flood stories. So, this is some of the, the points. Okay, this is from Dr. Stevenson again, his slide here. From the Gilgamesh epic. So the boat lands on Mount Nasir in this story. Um, Is
1: that a real place in the epic? Is the epic geographically real? Are are the places there? Like in the Bible, you know you have Jerusalem. For instance, is
0: Nasir Nasir a real place, Mount Nasir? Um, I didn't check into that, honestly. I don't know. So I'm really not an expert in... uh, this type of stuff. Okay. My forte is uh, big picture, biblical theology, uh, the no. survey stuff, um, books of the Bible type stuff. So <clears throat> uh, I do have. I did upload though another link for you. Yes. Sir. Um, depending on your interest level for this, there there is a link that I uploaded, and it is. I think it's Libius or Live. Maybe it's Live US. I don't know what. Um, I don't know if there's some key behind what they named their website. Um, but it lists um, several. I think they have at least half a dozen or more flood stories on this website, and they show the parallels. So you can look at it, and it will list the book, the, the flood. So it'll, it'll list these, plus the Bible one, plus uh, uh, Berossus that I mentioned earlier. And it will line them up in, in parallel columns. And so you can see which account has which parts of the story. Okay? So if you're interested in that type of stuff, I'm quite certain I put the link up last night. Okay. Okay? Um. So, any any other questions with uh, Gilgamesh? So Gilgamesh is the
1: protagonist. Is Noah? Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. All right then. Let's. Uh, continue moving on. Alright, so Genesis 5, the chronologies that I mentioned to you, these generations, the genealogies, moves from from Adam to Noah, and he's got three sons. In Genesis um, 11, alright, we go from Noah to Terah, okay, or Terah, and he has three sons. So notice there's a parallel going on here. Alright? Also, we're going to get into how the story of the Bible is not uh, chronological all the time, like chapters 10 and 11. So, in Genesis 11, it says the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. So, where is that? Okay, over in this area right here. Okay? So, a little bit north of this, the, the Babel dot there. So, this whole area all right, over the Mesopotamia area, is why it's so important that we get a grasp on uh, a little bit on the geography and culture of that. So what happens? They said, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used a brick for stone, they used tar for mortar, and they said, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now, again, if you're jumping into the middle of the story here, and you don't know the previous ten chapters, you, you miss some things, okay? What was God's command to his people? Popular. Okay, so they're not supposed to stay in one place, they're supposed to scatter, okay? Whose name are they supposed to make famous? His. His name, okay? So we have um, self-focused humanity right here, right? And This is the same problem we have today, right? We, we don't get away from it. This is our sin nature, all right? So what they're doing is, is not what God wants, okay? So this is a ziggurat, all right? A ziggurat was a place for uh, the gods to come down and to meet with, with mankind and, and their understanding of how things worked. I've uploaded a about a seven minute video, I think, from uh, Dr. John Walton. I mentioned him quite a bit last week with the comparative um, cosmology stuff. So I put a link last night on uh, for week three. It's only a seven minute video, and it is about the ziggurat as well, and how that played into their culture and their relationship of, that they desired, you know, with the gods, etc. So, it's just another picture. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad with the face of the whole earth. So, what does God do? God sees what's going on and he says, No, this isn't what's going to happen. We're not going to stop his plan. And so, they are from here scattered, which is what he wanted originally, and their languages are confused so they cannot continue uh, to build the tower that they were trying to build. We say tower, um, it's really a ziggurat. Right. So, oh. All right. So, all right. Where they do they move that? from there? Did you have a question? Why, why, why didn't they write Ziggurat or whatever that is rather than Tower? Well, everybody would say, "What's a Ziggurat?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So now what they do is, you know, they put a picture of a Ziggurat in your study Bible and tell oh, you yeah. what it is. So it was called Babel because the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So there's a play on words with Babel and confused. The Indo-European okay languages from Japheth, the Semitic languages from Shem, and the Hemetic from Ham are, are listed up here. the The next slide is going to show uh, a map. You can get it in any probably good study Bible as well of where. They were dispersed to. Now, I have one caveat that, that you need to understand. Okay, so on this map, this is the general area. You need to realize there's exceptions. If you go back and do a detailed study, uh, and I didn't bring, like, which ones are the exceptions with me, um, but a couple of good study Bibles. I'm trying to think if the uh, NIV study Bible used to have it. I mean, they all have one, but what I'm specifically looking for. Um, so you can, you can see Japheth, Shem, and Ham on their geographic areas. But what my point is, is that even though this is the major area down here where Ham was, that in reality, okay, there was also descendants of Ham that were over here, Okay, in, the, in the bottom of this section that, that has Shem listed on it. Okay? And there was others scattered throughout in different pockets as well. So it's here, but there's also some over in, in here. So it's not just a, a very harsh defined line. All right? But the point for us for today is the generic aspect of it. Okay? I want to simplify Right, Three things. So, that's where they go to. <laughs> now, Genesis 11 and 10, as I told you, they're not in chronological order, and it's not a strict chronology. Okay? Um, there, there's things that sometimes get skipped. You say, well, why, why? How do you know this? Why, why would they do that? Okay, we've got to go back and look at why do they have chronologies in there. The chronology isn't there so that you and I can piece together every single person that came out of Chronology is there as a hinge for the narrative, for the story, to, so we can move from this, this portion of the story to the, the portion on the other side of the door, and the hinge is there to show you how we get from one line to the next line. So how do we get from Noah to Abraham? So we don't need to list everybody. It's not necessary. So the connections between the people in the biblical genealogies are often abridged, all right? the, the last point that's up there. Again, you can do studies on, on that if you so choose as well. Genesis 10.1, okay? What's this phrase right here? Now, these are the records. What's the word?
1: Record?
0: Yeah, that's the Toledo, right? It's this right here, right? Okay? Of the generation of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons were born to them after the flood. <laughs> Alright, now, when they, when they scatter all over, they're, they're going to begin to obviously multiply, and so then you're going to get all the different branches. I'm, I'm not going to do anything with this slide um, or that one. In Genesis 10, Cush becomes the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So, as as uh, Ham, Cush, Nimrod um, begin to move on as, as Babel uh, gets developed. And then as God comes and judges, he's deciding what? That we're going to start over again with who? Who's our next main guy? Abraham. Abraham. Okay. okay. So that's where all this is leading up to. All right. All right? And so let me... Go ahead and move to, I think we're going to look at uh, Sargon now. Isn't Sargon some king?
1: Uh
0: huh. Yes. Bad. So, Nimrod, um, Nineveh, okay, Babel. Here I have some of them listed for you over here so you can see in the Mesopotamia area where we're talking about. Okay, Babel, Nineveh, of course, is going to become the capital of uh, which country? Syria, okay, so that's going to continue to play into uh, the biblical story, Jonah when we get to the prophets, etc., and then um, Shem, okay, as as Shem is, so this is a zoomed in on the map that we had before, showing where they they go and settle, so as, as Shem is going to come in, and his descendants are going to live here. And Abraham, of course, is going to be the descendant from Shem that we're going to focus on next. And this is where different um, peoples are going to set up also. Many of the, the early towns and cities, they're, they get their name from where? The names of the people. The people. Okay, the people that settled there. All right. So let's move on to i got a couple more verses here, and then we're at uh, Sargon, I think, in Ur. So two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was uh, Peleg. For his, his, in his days, the earth was divided, and his brothers was Joktan. Um, Eber is, is where it's hypothesized, or, or scholars think, I guess, that the, the word Hebrew comes from. So hmm, Jews is a totally different word. They were Hebrews. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these, uh, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So, what we have is the whole separation going on, and moving into (coughs) uh, setting us up for, for Abraham. In Deuteronomy 32, he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion this is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. In Acts chapter 17, it says that, that God has, has put you in a certain place. So this is the idea that God is sovereign in the world. This is the idea that, that God has something that he started in the garden it's going to finish in, in Revelation, the new heavens and new earth. And although we can make a mess of things, we're not going to stop his plan. And so that, that's what he is, is doing. So you're not going to stop it. Sargon's not going to stop it. <coughs> so, we're back to the Fertile Crescent area. All right. Okay, so we get over here to the Mesopotamia area. All right. the The river valley here. Remember that. Let me go to the next one. contest with Mesopotamia and Egypt. We looked at that last week. All right. Sumer. So we talked about the cuneiform. So this is what a tablet would actually look like, um, a clay tablet. So you have a stylus, and you, you press into it, and you make these marks, or you can you kind of draw a little bit with it. So this would be over in this area. Okay? So again, we're Mesopotamia. The Sumerians. These are early people groups. The Akkadians, the Sumerians, Guti, and the Elamites, all over there as well. (coughs) We've already looked at Babylon, so you know about that one. Kish, Erech, and Legish are all there. This is uh, another artifact from um, archaeology from around 2500 BC, as you can see, um, of, of one of the kings of this place that we just looked at right there, okay? So, that's where that's coming from. Now, um, some some of these guys' names I I really don't know how to pronounce well at all. So, um, in Natum, the grandson of Ur nanshe he unified Sumer, okay? So, why does this matter? Sumer, remember, we're leading up to who? Abram. Where does Abram come from? He comes from Ur and the Sumer area, right? Exactly, okay? So he unifies all of Sumer, okay? Then he invades Edom. That was up on the, the screen uh, a minute ago when we had the map up there. All right? So when, when you look at these areas, okay? So Ur is where we're leading up to, right? So, Sargon, okay? Let me talk to you about Sargon for a minute.
1: Sargon.
0: Yeah. It's a cool name. Hey, Sargon, how here. Well, his name means um, legitimate prince because he was not a legitimate prince, <laughs> so he gave himself uh, this name. Okay. And so he died around twenty three thirty BC. But those other cities that um, that we were just looking at right here. So when you see up, those, those cities over, over there, right? So Kish in the central Mesopotamia, you know, near near the Babylon um, and Iraq. Ur and Legish. So this is the time period that Gilgamesh became king of Uruk in 2650 BC. So when we're talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh, okay, so now we're connecting it to uh, the particular place. So the Gilgamesh Epic that we just talked about, about the immortality and the conflicts with the, the gods and the monsters and whatever else is involved in it. So that is where it's coming out of. This is the golden age of Sumerian civilization. And so what that means is things are going great. So when we get to Abraham, we need to understand like, th- things are going very well in this place. Um, the economy's good, arts are good, things are good. So Sargon the Great, a text written in the 7th century BC, describes his birth and his early life, okay, in terms similar to some degree to Moses. So Sargon, the mighty king, the king of Agade, am I? My mother was a changeling. My father knew me not. Nah. The brother of my father loved the hills. My city is Azupiranu, which is situated at the banks of the Euphrates. My changeling mother conceived me in secret. She bore me. She set me in a blanket of rushes. With bitumen she sealed my lid. What's this talking about? Moses, I'm talking. yeah. She cast me into the river, which rose up over me. The river bore me up and carried me to Aki, the drawer of water. Aki, the, the drawer of water, lifted me out as he dipped his water, and he took me as his son, and he reared me. So according to this legend, his mother put him in a pitch-covered basket in the Euphrates, and by chance a farmer drawing water to irrigate his field found the basket and raised the child as his own. Okay? When you was see, that written? You, uh, well, pardon? When was that written? Uh, that was written in... 7th century B.C. So, and and he died around 2330. So, he goes on to become the cupbearer to the king of Kish. Okay? This is what I just read, but I didn't advance it while I was reading it. So,
1: So, that person is silent his history, I guess you just read about.
0: Yes. So, well, that's the legend. Okay. So he goes on to become the cupbearer to the king of Kish, and he eventually overthrows the king and places himself on the throne and takes the name Sargon. So yes, he he, he takes over. He does. How he got here, okay, that's the legend, right? But as far as the historicalness of him being Sargon. So, as I mentioned, the name means legitimate um, prince. And so, this begins over the next few years, he conquers all the cities of Mesopotamia, marching southward uh, to, quote, wash his weapons in the lower sea, and then turning westward to Mediterranean and capturing the silver mines of Tarsus and sending ships to Cyprus and Crete. Okay? So, he is expanding, he's increasing the empire, he is... He is um, making this empire um, great. His empire continued to be ruled by his son and his grandson, but he eventually fell prey to a group of invaders known as the Guti. So if you remember from, it's not on this slide, but it was on the slide um, a few ago. Um, And they helped sway over Mesopotamia from 2220 to 2120 B.C., all right, this marked the da- Dark Ages of Mesopotamia and it came to an end with the rise of the city of Ur. So, Sargon and his descendants, okay, then you got the Guti Empire, and then that leads into Ur, with specifically the Third Dynasty of Ur. And so, the, the dynasty of Ur. slide up for you from 2100 to 2000 BC so this is the last Sumerian dynasty to rule in Mesopotamia under these kings Sumer was restored to much of her former glory the branches of art saw a renaissance economic prosperity became the the norm Um, ziggurats were built which of course we've, we've seen that already So the Ziggurat of Ur was a giant semi-pyramid-type structure of brick that covered an area of 200 by 140 feet. So it's 200, 200 by, by 140, with three terraced stages and on top a small shrine uh, towering 90 feet above the city. So when you read in, in, uh, in the Genesis account, they're trying to build a, quote, tower. So they're building this, this big pyramid-like structure Then at the top it has this additional power portion to it. So it looks something like the pyramids of Egypt, but the purpose was quite a bit different. The pyramid was dark, a musty tomb for a dead pharaoh. The ziggurat was sun sun sun-bathed ladder to the gods connecting heaven and earth. Okay, so the pharaohs are buried in their tombs. Alright? At death. The ziggurat is a place to connect with the gods here and now. So when, when you're looking at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, you say, well, what are they trying to do? Yeah, they're they're trying man's own attempts to have God or God's present in their life. Remember, go back to the garden. God was present, and they rebelled and they sinned. And so they're removed from the presence of God. And what's the rest of the Bible story? Back to the whole temple motif, right? The rest of the Bible story is, is God being present with man. Isn't that the whole thing? In Revelation, we have no more need for a temple. Why? Because God is there with us. And so, <clears throat> man tries his own way to get that relation and get that connection and get to the gods. And these other stories, creation stories, blood stories that we read, are evidences of, of, of man always having this idea that that he's he's not all there is. Like, there's something more, there's something greater, there's more, and how do we connect with this? And so, the law codes of Ur are also ancient. I think last week, we had just briefly mentioned um, about the Ten Commandments and Moses not being the the earliest uh, law codes. And so, the law codes of, of Ur were found through different archaeological aspects. We'll mention uh, Leonard Woolley in just a minute. But, so Ur developed a law code with four essential ingredients, which would later, later carry over into the famous quote of Hammurabi. So this is before Hammurabi. Okay? This is before Moses. The idea of lex talionis, okay, which is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. All right. Now, let me just make a comment on that. The biblical use of eye for an eye is not, I don't think, what most people interpret it to mean. Again, this is it, this is where we have taken our cultural understanding and we have jammed it into the text. Eye for an eye was meant more as a limiting effect and not as a retaliatory effect. Poke out my eye, okay? The worst punishment, this is, this is the punishment needs to fit the crime, right? Mm-hmm. The, the worst that should be dealt back to you would be the same. So what I hear people use it for um, in our culture is eye for an eye is you punch me, I punch you. That's really not the, the intent. If the intent is the most I can do is punch you. Alright? So it doesn't mean I have to punch you, it means that's the most I can do. And then, uh, as
1: you add in, as can or should party? Can or should? Can. As the most, I should do, or more that I can, most I can. Do. <coughs> so and I poke, I poke out your eye. So if I poke out your eye, mm-hmm. that's the end of it. I don't get to go to prison. I don't spend no time. That's it. I don't have to be spending two years behind bars thinking about what I did to you. But you see, that's no, I, that's how I live. So no, I understand. I understand. I'm, tr- I'm trying to get back there. <laughs> right. But I'm trying to get back there to where you are. Are you saying that when I poke your eye out today, you poke mine out, that's it. You go about your business, I go about mine. Is that what they meant?
0: Uh, yes, pretty much. But okay. I would poke your eye out. So, so Jesus so. says what?
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> we were trying to uh, explain,
0: let's You're right. saying that no. when they said that. Jail. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Okay, it depends on the time period. That they do have jails. Joseph is in jail, right? So there are jails in the old testament. So I think where you're trying to go with this is the same place that I've wrestled with for years. Remember, I have a bachelor's in in criminal justice. Oh so how do we take you know biblical concepts and how do we uh, live them out? It, you know? it's not sound like we can just start from ground zero. So, h- how do you uh, deal with that in a modern sense? And that's what you're getting at, right? right. Yeah. Sure. If I go to Walmart, take a candy bar, mm-hmm. they lock me up for six months
1: and, and for, 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 yeah, but all <coughs> I need to do is to get my but mom, stupid! To, which, I need to get my mom, so come
0: pay for the candy bar, and then we go back, go for is If I come back... Right, that's restitution. So, the biblical concept Sheep plus 20% maybe. Right? Right. Right. And that's it. It's done. So, no, I'm not in jail. The problem with. See, now you're going to get me to to talk politics and and our culture. (laughs) The problem with what we do is um, I steal your sheep, okay? Uh, I get caught. Um, I've already eaten your sheep. Uh, And then because he's worth more than $500, I go to prison because it's a felony. So, now um, you don't get your sheep back. I'm in prison. Now, my family's got no income. Now, my family has to go on food stamps. And everybody's paying for me to be in prison, which isn't doing me any good anyways. And so, you see, it's just a, a massive snowball mess. What needs to mess. happen is I owe you for your sheep plus some. Right? Because I shouldn't have done what I did. And and then I should learn from that. And so, what if you can't pay? Well, we find a way to make you pay. So, make me go do community service or make me go build a road or whatever. i earn the money. Again. Right, mm-hmm.
1: So, God's way is better than our way.
0: Isn't it always? <laughs>
1: so, You're why not. why do we perpetuate the foolishness that we do?
0: Because you and I don't make the laws. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is so sad.
0: It's more than sad. It's completely. Hallelujah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's garbage. It doesn't help anything. It's just. I'm, we're just I'm, in a you snowballing mess. That
1: does open my mind a lot.
0: Right. So, well, and that's the thing. Like, Once I learned. Mm-hmm what Lex Talionis was really about, it, it changes your perspective. It's not about, take him out. It's not this vengeance attitude. See, that fits right in with our American culture. What's almost every guy action movie about. It's about vengeance. Even if they tagline it as justice, it's usually not justice, it's vengeance. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so it's really limiting it. Um, and restitution, as I said, is is a huge thing. Mo- most crimes in in the, the Bible, most uh, Stealing and, and stuff like that. Generally, it's restitution. So Now, there are capital offenses. That brings another issue. But uh, capital offenses are mostly for crimes against life. You're trying to take a life. That goes back to Genesis 9. So we are told that there. You're made in the image of God. If you take a life, you forfeit your life. And so you say, well, how come kidnapping? Well, because kidnapping um, is taking a life. You're, you're, you're taking their life. So... Kidnapping, murder, rape, stuff like that is, in the Old Testament, capital offenses. And that's why. It's a life. So okay, I, I hate to do this to I you. I hate to in the United you. <laughs> I was hoping no one was going to ask another question on that and <laughs> <laughs> I could Because so, um, there's some people, there's some prominent Christian figures that are, are super against it, and mm-hmm. I've heard arguments both ways. Yep. And, against and if you sm- didn't add in the United States, I would have one answer. And since so you added it in the United States, I have a different answer, probably. So, I flipped back and forth. When I first became a Christian, I was anti-death penalty. Mm -hmm. After becoming a Christian and being surrounded by Protestant and Baptists and everything, I became pro-death penalty, you know, Uh, Romans 13, uh, Genesis 9-6, you know. So, um, in our American culture, (coughs) I think where I'm at now is no death penalty. Uh, the Christian argument that um, there should be no death penalty because of Jesus, um, I'm not 100% convinced on yet. Um, I understand it. There's forgiveness, etc., etc., but uh, there's also a societal aspect, and you, you've taken a life, so um, don't take this, well, I <laughs> was going to say don't take this harsh so, uh, um, you know, you forfeited your life. Mm-hmm. So, give them the gospel and kind of move on. But in our system, it doesn't work like that. And, and it's extremely tedious. Um, I think it is racist. I think it's unjust, how we do it, how it's carried out. So, I think the people that are currently arguing, and they're mostly arguing because they think it's unjust and, and racist. The, the, the people arguing for morality are kind of a different group of people, I think. Um, so, yeah, I kind of signed with that at this point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if you get rid of in the United States, then how does that change? Um, I, think the idea, I think the states or the government does have the authority, biblically, to carry out capital punishment. I don't think you and I do. You and I are commanded to forgive. Uh, the government or whatever, your country, you know, they're tasked with protecting their people. Mm-hmm. So your question is, what do you do with a murderer? you take his life, he forfeits his life, um, or you lock him up somewhere. And those are really only two choices. So, um, prison this is another aspect that I have kind of changed my mind on. Um, psychologically, I think that prison is, is very detrimental. Especially the, the group of people we're talking about, we're talking about death row. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about people that are on death row and or in isolation. Um, Psychological studies and research, and, and I don't think our answer should be based on psychology. I think that this just uh, supports the idea that we're supposed to be in relationship. But if you're not in relationship with people, there's a reason you go crazy. Hmm. Like I think we're more meant to be in relationships with people. You know, you know, heard maybe this is just like old American folklore, but you know, you hear the stories. I've never met one, <laughs> but you hear the stories about the old hermit guy that lived off in the woods and uh, he's crazy or something. Well, yeah, probably because he's by himself all the time, you know. Um, people that are all day long, you know, in a cubicle and, and don't really have any interaction. They never make friends with any of their office cubicle people, or whatever you call them. Um, it's the same thing. Like I know people like this that, and they never had close relationships their whole life. I mean, relationships are hard, but I'm just saying I think that there's an aspect to that where, like, we really do. To go crazy. I'm not sure what all that has to do with Sargon, but <laughs> <coughs> but that's all good stuff. Yeah, I would love one day to write a book. I don't know if I'll ever write a book because I guess I don't take the time to start one. But um, biblical jurisprudence is a book. One of my books I would like to write one day. I'll ask you
1: uh, the question after the class.
0: Okay. <laughs> 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 um. So. Yeah, let's just let's move on with that. Uh, the law codes were there. They're before Hammurabi. So it's Ur and then Hammurabi and, and then Moses sometime after that. So if you just wanna, you know, to to keep it straight in your head, you're going from Ur to Hammurabi to Moses, Ten Commandments, right? No, I'm not saying that like they all built on each other exactly like that. I'm just saying time-wise. Alright, that's how they go. Alright, so Uh, That's in Ur. Um, When it says, semi-private administration of justice, it was the job of the victim and his family and friends to bring the offender to justice. The court served only as a referee in disputes. There was no police system to maintain public safety or security. Um, The inequality, the law code divided people into three classes. There was the aristocrats, the commoners, and the slaves. And penalties were graded according to the rank of both the victim and the offender. So the killing of an aristocrat was considered a much more serious offense than the killing of a slave. (coughs) Moreover, an aristocrat was punished more severely than a man of inferior caste would be for the same crime. So, they didn't really have, uh, when it comes to capital punishment, obviously everybody was not viewed as made in God's image and you're all equal and so it's all taken up a life. There's a distinction also between accidental and intentional homicide. In the case of an accidental death, the offender had to pay a penalty to the family of the victim. So you can see, we do have some similarities even to you know, that type of a, a system in our own. So, that was in Ur, okay? Um The close of the 21st century, um, not A.D., a people known as the um, Amura, the biblical Amorites, so just think of Amorites, began to move into Mesopotamia from the northwest, conquering the cities of Babylon and Larsa and in that area. And... The armies of Sumer managed to hold them off for a time, but then the Elamites' uh, provinces in the east declared their independence, and many of the provincial governors took this opportunity to revolt. Thus weakened, Ur fell to the assault of Elam, and her king carried off into captivity. With the destruction of Ur, the dominance of the Sumerian people came to a close, but their culture lived on, as it was adopted by the Assyrians in the north and the Amorites in the south. These and succeeding kingdoms adopted the Sumerian uh, pantheon, as well as their cuneiform methods of writing, Adapting it to their own languages. So, who do we owe most of this information and the early information that we got from Ur to? We owe it to Sir Leonard Woolley, who began his excavations at Ur in 1922. And that archaeological information is still being used today. We just talked about it. So, that's the man. He and... uh, He and his crew found this stuff. All right. So that's the background. That's him. But that's the background for leading us to um, the context of Abraham. So the Amorites, the Elamites, so they come in uh, from from those two areas. And they kind of took out Ur, if you will. So Abraham comes from Ur of the Chaldees. There's a little bit of debate, debate about where that is. could be the Ur down here. Some will say there's another Ur here that it could be. So here's Haran, where he's going to go to before he goes to Canaan. And over here is where uh, Wooly was doing his digs at that Ur there. So when we move into <coughs> – that's the, the second potential place. So we look at um, Abram's line, and we see that, you know, he has uh, the two kids, but only one is from the, the promise with uh, Sarah. And So Terah has Haran, Nahor, and Abram. Okay? So you saw a slide probably, I don't know, 40 minutes ago by now, that there's uh, the three sons that were listed. Alright, just like Noah has Shem, Ham, and Japheth, so here we have again, you see the symmetry throughout scripture, right? So, Terah, Haran, Nahor, and, and Abram, okay? Lot is the from Haran, and what happens here is when he dies, okay, probably he, he is the eldest and Abram is the second, so when he dies, um... Lot kind of becomes the, the custodian, if you will, uh, under Abram. He takes the responsibility. So in the, the culture, this is how the ancient Near East works, um, the eldest male is, is the patriarch. They're responsible for the family, the family's well-being, their security, etc. And so <clears throat> that is potentially why Lot goes with him when he leaves. So... He went from Ur to Haran. That's where um, Tara dies. And then God speaks to him and says, hey, get moving again, right? So God speaks in Genesis 12, 1-3. to That's the covenant that we have. And then in Genesis chapter 15. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about covenants as well. There's also a seven-minute video from John Walton on covenants and an interview with John Walton about covenants and it's relationship to the Ten Commandment that I uploaded uh, on the website for you as well. So then he continues on. So from here up to Haran, Ur er to Haran, and then over here down to uh, Canaan. Genesis twelve five it says, "Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan." Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Mori. And now the Canaanite was then in the land. Uh, Next class period, we're going to talk about uh, the Canaanites. We're going to talk about uh, the conquest. I've uploaded two articles from uh, Copeland on the Canaanites. So if you could look at those, that would be beneficial that we could have maybe a little bit of discussion Related to the conquest and the Canaanites, and how that could be permissible, etc. Right? There's two articles they are labeled, I think, Copeland 2 and Copeland 3. There's actually there's a third one, but uh, I didn't give it to you. <coughs> so, the Canaanites, which we will talk about next week. So, it we goes to Shechem. You can see Shechem, you can just think of it as straight north of Jerusalem. So, if you've already got Jerusalem plugged in, okay, you just got to um, remember everything based on something else. you got to connect it. It's like putting a hat and a, a peg on the wall. You throw it on the wall and there's no peg, it just falls on the floor, right? That's how our brains work. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, take your descendants, I'll give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. One of the things you'll find is as Abraham goes throughout his life, he constantly builds these altars. He's, he's worshiping God. So continues. He proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and A on the east. So you can see where he's moving on, and he builds an altar also there, Shechem Bethel. And then he goes down to the Negev. Negev is this de- the desert dry area down um, in the southern area, and he's, he's wandering around in this area. Right? God actually has him pretty much travel the area that he's giving him. He can, he can scope out the whole land. It's kind of like you buy a farm and... Uh, probably before you buy it, um, but maybe after you buy it also, uh, you take a trek around the whole perimeter, right? You're checking out your land. Where, where's my land? And where's the neighbor's start, etc. So it was a little bit of a journey like that. Now there's a famine in the land, so Abram goes to Egypt. So how long does he stay in the land? Not long at all. So then he heads over to Egypt. And we're not going to talk about all the things that happen uh, there in Egypt, <coughs> other than the fact that when we talk about the promise You need to understand that the the whole storyline is the idea of all the hindrances, the problems, that come to the promise. And how is God going to still make the promise work? Or is God going to still make the promise work, is sometimes what the question is. So, uh, of course, the pyramids were uh, actually already there. So, not that one, maybe, but um, maybe that one. The pyramids. Then, as they they, uh, continue... Abram and Lot, they're back in the land, and um, so Lot's uh, possessions and his are too great, and they argue, right? So where does Lot go? Lot goes, and he goes. They split. Abram takes what looks like to Lot, not as good of a land, but it's the land that God has. So Lot, in a sense, is separating himself out from the promised land and God's promise. Um, we might not recognize that when we read it at first. But that's, that's what you have to realize with the land. The land is the promised land. And so the whole point is to be in the promised land. Wow. Um, so he was, Abraham, Abraham was already living in like, the area of Israel back then? When he came from Haran mm-hmm. into the promised land. Yep, he came down, crossed over the, the Jordan River. Um, but he's moving around a lot. Because mm-hmm. then he goes to Egypt because there's a famine, right? Then he's moving between different areas. Then he's down in the Negev. He's checking around in the Negev. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. So, we're in. I mean, this, this whole section is is what God's given him. So, <clears throat> all right. What I want to look at real quick before we leave, I think, is, is the covenant. So, Genesis 15, Genesis 12, all right. God shows up. And he says, listen, go. All right. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed, descendants. I'm going to bless you. Through you, I'll bless all the nations. Um, but the phrase means to cut a covenant, right? Literally, it's to cut a covenant. And this is where, for a little more information, you can uh, look at the article by John Walton in the interview with John Walton that I posted. And what they would ri- literally do, okay, is um, those are like dead carcasses, Okay, and they're split in half, okay, because you're literally cutting a covenant, or we would say cut a, what yeah. do we, huh? cut a deal, cut a deal. right, uh, where do okay. you think that came from, mm-hmm. cut a deal, cut a covenant, right, wow. so they're making a deal, so the cut part is because they really cut, <laughs> they chopped yeah. animals in half, um, so that's kind of what these are. Okay, birds, cows, bulls, etc. And so, half on each side, and um, obviously, you know, the way the, the drawing is here, a uh, little bit of an incline, so, the, you know, the blood's coming down the middle. So, it came about when the sun had set. This is Genesis 15 17. It was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. All right, now I want to make a couple comments, and I want to also read the first few verses of Genesis 12. When the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land and your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt, or curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay? Now, at Babel, they wanted to make their own name great. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I'll make your name great. So this this is letting God do his work, right? He says to Abram, Abram was most likely worshipping moon gods with the rest of his family when God speaks to him. And I I don't know how he knows it's God, but somehow he knows it's God, right? I guess when God shows up you know it's God. So he obeys and he leaves. Then this happens. Okay? So Abram has already followed and obeyed. Okay? There's some debate in the study of covenants as to whether or not the covenant initiates a relationship or if the covenant um, initiates a, a new aspect to the relationship. So I would say it kind of looks like Abram has already got this relationship. God's already initiated something in Genesis 12, right? And so in Genesis 15, <coughs> when this happens, the animals are cut in half. And then what you would do is you walk between the animals. And the, what you're saying is – The end is, God? What's that? The end of God walk? Uh – well, in a regular covenant, yes, you might both walk. But who walks in this story? Only God. Okay? So this is what makes it even more dramatic. When you walk between the dead animals, what you're saying is, if if I don't fulfill what I said, my deal, what I said I would do, then you you can have this done to me. Okay? Ooh. Off with my head. You can kill me, okay? Abram isn't walking between. God is going between. God is guaranteeing to Abraham with his life, so to speak, if he could, that I guarantee you, above all guarantees, that what I promise you is going to come to pass. So this is the backdrop. This is the understanding of the Abrahamic covenant that plays out through the rest of the storyline. The the uh, Davidic covenant, when God promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, that's building on this covenant, alright, and so when you look at, um, well before that we could go to the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant with the Ten Commandments, that's building on this one as well, because all of those come after what God has already promised to um, Abram, and what he's going to do with him and through him to make basically him a pipeline for the gospel to the whole world, so now we know in New Testament, I mean, we're supposed to be that pipeline, the church. So
1: that's powerful. Because God can't die. So right, whatever he said. You can take it to the bank. Right? It's guaranteed. Robert, it. He and he can't lie either. No. So so is what that covenant con- I had a preacher come my church and he said something the other day and I was kind of worried. Is that covenant conditional or
0: Irregardless okay, of how good. I behave. Good. Um, I would think that this covenant is unconditional. That's why he forgave him for lying when he went on the pair. I think this covenant is, is God. This is God going to do a work. Now, you get to, there's other aspects that, there are conditional aspects. So, um, you'll see repeatedly that God will tell the people, okay? in order for them to stay in the land, they got to do what? To, to, to obey. Right. My, my Be faithful, right? Obey. So, <clears throat> if you're faithful, you stay in the land. If you're not, you are kicked out of the land. Um, but, the next generation, or maybe 70 years later, depending on whatever the consequence was, right? So, come back from exile or whatever. The next generation, though, they have an opportunity. So, God has chosen, excuse me, through uh, Abram, to bless, bless the world, which is which is why I'm, I'm jumping to David with this, but when you add on the Davidic line, see, now it's not enough to be from Abram, now we've got to be from David's line, and there's going to be a king, there's going to be a future messiah that's got to come through that line. See, yes, you can take all this to the bank, and yes, God's going to do it, even if his people are unfaithful. So, yeah. Look at this uh, phrase here. There appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Okay, we get into Exodus. So that's God. And God showing up, yes. That that, that term, that description is describing God walking through the, okay. Which then you get again in the (coughs) Exodus, right? As he is the fire by night, the cloud by day. Okay, so (coughs) these aspects of God revealing himself to his people. Which, of course, the tabernacle, you know, the whole point was for God to be with his people. So, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river river Euphrates. Um, so, when, when you plot this out, it's a very large piece of land. And this is why, I'm glad you asked the question, uh, because that is usually the next thing discussed when you look at these covenants. Is it conditional or unconditional? And I don't have time um, in our class today to go through this. Um, I was trying to, to find I'd love,
1: I'd love you to, to, to deal with that because that's so important
0: well I was trying to find and I didn't have an electronic I didn't find it but I could probably google and find one um, the NIV study bible used to have a really good um, chart showing the different uh, treaties and covenants uh, that occurred in the ancient near east and how they're connected so you've got suzerain vassal treaties which is which is where a king, a suzerain in and, and you become his servant, okay. and then you've got uh, other treaties. Uh, you got like the a land grant. That's another type, and then um, you've got the the Abrahamic one we just had. So, what they do is this is a, a case study on what we talked about last week and this week, and, and then picking an example. Like you could do a paper on this. So, comparative studies. So you look. They look at the ancient Near East and they're looking at Hittite treaties, suzerain-vassal treaties, and how did people make a deal with each other, and what were the components? And like in the suzerain-vassal treaty, if I recall, there's um, I think there's like seven different parts to it. And so then you look at it, and um, Bible scholars will look at um, the Ten Commandments this way. Sometimes they'll look at the covenant with Abraham, and they'll line these up and say these are the parallels with the uh, the suzerain-vassal treaty, etc. Is the
1: suzerain-vassal
0: one right? So there's, and then what other types do you have? Land grant, royal, land grant, grant uh, I don't know if anybody else remember any others
1: You said it's in the NIV study Bible?
0: Yeah. Okay. Unless they took it out. Um, let's, let's just wrap up then with, um, so Abram then, um, scouts out this land, you know, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So, I mean, this is a ton of chunk of land that, that God is, is, is giving. And then, uh, we'll end with him, uh, purchasing a tomb when his wife dies. This is actually, uh, the first piece of land he, quote, owns. Um, he bought it when Sarah dies. So that's the, I don't know, putting your foot in the ground, first shovel full um, for breaking ground, etc. And the idea of the covenant, uh, the unconditional aspect that, that we were just talking about, or um, God, you know, guaranteeing that he's going to do what he said he's going to do, It makes it more, I don't know, we're hypocrites when we, when we do this, but if you look at all the, the things that Abraham didn't trust God in, you say, well, what's your problem? But then, of course, you have to look in the mirror because we do the same thing, right? I mean, we've, we've, got, we've got better promises than Abraham, right? And, and so you've got to look in the mirror. So anyways, let's close with the order of prayer. Father, thank you for yes. this time we've had, and I just pray that... Um, As we study your word, that we would um, discover new things. Not things that we're pouring into it, but things that you're showing us that are already there. And I pray that you would uh, use those to spark interest, encouragement, um, help us to realize um, how much we can trust you. Yes. That you are are worthy of our trust and that um, we can take what you say to the bank. You said it. It's going to happen. And uh, help us not to put words in your mouth. Help us to understand the words that have come from your mouth. And uh, we just give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.